0: Welcome to the first episode of In the Shadows, a podcast where we try to make sense of security and spying. For this week's episode, I spoke to Nina Jankowitz, a fellow at the Wilson Centre, about disinformation, what it is, how to spot it, and just what kind of impact it can have on a country. She has recently released her book, How to Lose the Information War, which dives into disinformation and how it has affected different countries. Hi, Nina. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? Ah, I'm hanging in there,
1: almost the end of the week. <laughs> Weekend doesn't look much different than the rest of the week, but at least it's a little slower pace.
0: <laughs> in, in these COVID times of quarantine and stuff, every day feels exactly the same.
1: I know, I know.
0: I, thought, I do get some
1: sort of dread on Monday mornings um, <laughs> because it's another week of, of the same, um, yeah. and I think that that can be pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah,
0: a little bit. <laughs> um so you have recently just released a book which explores information warfare and the kind of responses to this um so can you tell me a little bit about what led you to being interested in this area of security
1: sure i'll try to give you the cliff
0: notes version because it's a little <laughs> bit of a, a saga
1: um Basically, I used to work for a democracy support organization called the National Democratic Institute that supported a lot of um, activists all around the world, and I worked on Russia and Belarus. I've always been somebody who is very interested in Eastern Europe, and it really um, is my lens for the rest of the work that I do, and early on in that work, uh, I... Our, our office in Russia essentially was, was asked to leave um, and had to relocate to Lithuania uh, and later to Estonia. Um, and during that time, the Russian government started to kind of put out a lot of disinformation about our organization. Um, and I started thinking a lot about how the information warfare against Russian citizens worked. Um, and then of course the Ukraine crisis happened in 2013 and 2014 when I was at the same job. And, um, and that was you know, a, a pretty critical juncture as well in understanding how Russia was changing its, uh, or perhaps expanding its information warfare. Um, and so then I went to Ukraine uh, for a year as a, an advisor to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs under a Fulbright grant. I watched from Ukraine as the U.S. presidential election happened in 2016, and I really thought that the United States could learn a lot from our allies in Central and Eastern Europe that had been dealing with Russian information warfare and disinformation as a, as a concept more broadly um, for much longer than we had and in a more kind of concentrated fashion, and so that's where the book came from.
0: Interesting. You've had quite a, an exciting career uh, so far in
1: of it. I wish it were a little less exciting, frankly. <laughs> I wish these things weren't important. I wish they weren't, you know, the, the things that would uh, be one of the top topics, for instance, for our election here in the States
0: coming up, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so people throw around the term disinformation a lot, especially at the moment, um, and it's often used in the media to describe a whole lot of things, but what actually is disinformation?
1: Yeah, this is such an important point because often these terms will be used interchangeably um, and that really, really annoys me. So uh, disinformation is the use of false or misleading information with malign intent and misinformation is the use of false or misleading information without that malign intent. So when you have like a crazy aunt or uncle who's sharing conspiracy theories, that's misinformation, not disinformation, that the intent is different. And then sometimes we'll hear people call disinformation propaganda. And I would say that propaganda is a a subset of disinformation. Propaganda is Uh, the use of false or misleading information with the intent of either putting forth an ideology or supporting a particular political regime, um, etc. So the, the sort of things that we've been seeing coming from China during the COVID crisis, that's propaganda. Um, and, uh, again, it it has that specific political intent or ideological intent behind it. Or, you know, the, the Soviet propaganda that we saw, uh, during the heyday of the Soviet Union, again, propaganda, not more broadly disinformation, of course, but, um, disinformation, as I said, can apply to a, a number of things. And perhaps a good distinction to make the, between the two is that disinformation, uh, can often be amplifying causes on opposing sides of the political spectrum, whereas propaganda is is just kind of working on one side, if that makes sense. So we've seen in, in the United States, for instance, uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency use uh, pro-Trump narratives and anti-Trump narratives in order to pit Americans against one another and undermine the functioning of our democratic process.
0: So just kind of on that, there's been... You know Russia and kind of the u s elections has been dominating kind of everything for the last few years. but why do states and and possibly other rogue actors engage in disinformation operations?
1: Well I think it depends um on who you're looking at so uh, going back to Russia and China, their operations are actually quite different when you look at what they've done uh, relating to covid um with China, the idea is to Really put forth a positive image of China as a country that handled the virus well, to kind of push back against these narratives that the Trump administration and some other Western governments have been uh, putting forth about, you know, the Chinese responsibility for the spread of the virus, um, things like that. Russia, on the other hand, um is trying to really poke at the fissures in our society and and our government's responses to uh, to covid. so um they you know are looking at uh, the the kind of problems that the US government has had, um, comparing that with, with Russia, with other you know countries that are dealing with the virus. Of course, Russia's record itself hasn't been too good, but they like to say that it's been better than ours, and we do top the list in terms of infections. Um, and, uh, and so, again, the idea there isn't to say that Russia is better, necessarily, but to just point out to American society, like, hey, you can't trust your government. Um, you, you, your government is failing you, and uh, and you know you should be upset. This should uh, really incite your your anger on various sides of the spectrum, right? We've seen uh, Russian disinformation criticizing U.S. response to the virus, and we've also seen it criticizing f- from the other side. So about mask mandates or or potential vaccines, we've seen Russian disinformation properties spreading information that you know. Uh, in a vaccine, there will be some sort of tracking chip or that masks are harmful to your health, things like this. Um, And all of that, again, is to undermine the cohesion of our society. And how does that benefit Putin? Well, it uh, allows him when he has protesters, as he had for has had for the last several months in places like Khabarovsk in the far east, to point to the United States and say, "Hey, you you want democracy? Look what's going on in in the United States, which is supposed to be the world's leader of democracies, right? Uh, look at the protests going on there. Look at how they're handling the virus. Aren't you glad that I provide order in our society? Um, and uh, and I think that's a big part of it. But he also is trying to, you know. By creating and destabilizing, uh, creating destabilizing narratives in the West, he's trying to undermine Western hegemony and carve Russia out a larger piece of the pie um, in the international arena. So the Russian side of things is is a bit more complex as most Russian things are. (laughs) Uh, And then when you look at other disinformation actors, you know, there are a lot um, more rudimentary, still using bot and troll networks to kind of amplify messages inorganically. It's a bit more kind of blunt force than the more complex operations that Russia is doing, and it, it usually airing more toward the side of propaganda.
0: So outside of the US, what kind of impact have these kind of operations had on real people in, living in countries that are having to kind of grapple with this information warfare? Yeah, um,
1: that's a great question. And nobody ever asks, you know, what about outside the US? And that's what I try to bring out in the book. So thank you for that. Um, if we go back as far as 2007, in Estonia, the Baltic country of about 1.3 million people, um, in 2007, Russia created a disinformation operation there that led to riots and one death. Um, this was kind of egged on by Russian language media. It was also, it's thought that there was involvement of the security services and the Russian embassy there in organizing the protests that led to these riots. So it's not just about silly memes and things that happen online. It often brings okay. people to the streets. And we saw that in the 2016 election in the United States as well and, and afterward, if for a matter of fact. Um, in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia in 2008, um the disinformation campaign that Russia was running went hand in hand with a war um, and a, a cyber attack as well. So a uh, huge effect, you know, a, a, an attempted demoralizing effect on the Georgian public an attempted rewriting of the narrative of what happened for the international community. That was where... The Russian government really understood that it needed an international news arm in order to project um, its influence, and after that experience, it really started investing more in RT, um, which of course has has gained a lot of notoriety since 2016. Um, And then, you know, if we look at things like uh, Poland, um, where they're because of the society being quite, you know, conservative Catholic society, Russia has been able to put forth anti-LGBTQ narratives in Poland. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that <laughs> that Russia is responsible for homophobia in Poland. They Just like here in the United States uh, with endemic racism, Poland has plenty of homophobia to go around for itself. But um, we've seen these Russian-sponsored outlets pushing this narrative in addition to the conservative outlets that were already pushing it, kind of flooding the zone with, with real vitriol. And that has had an effect on um, the lives of, of gay people in Poland. Um, I describe an incident in uh, in my book where, um, and it's just a horrifying image still to this day, but uh, a woman is at a gay pride march kind of heckling the, uh, the marchers and she takes her child, a young child's hands and holds it up into a middle finger. Um, and again, this isn't something that Russia did, no one, in the Russian government told yeah. this woman to do that. But these narratives, whether they're foreign or domestic, have an impact. And that, I guess, is the biggest worry for me. And one of the biggest lessons um, from writing and researching my book is that you know, we can talk about foreign disinformation until the cows come home, but until we recognize that it exists Uh, on a domestic level, and we fight it with the same rigor that we are trying to fight the the foreign angle, um, we're not going to be able to make any progress against it, because no matter the vector that it's coming from, no matter the political party or ideology it's supporting, disinformation aims to undermine democracy um, and undermine people's connection to their government, their trust in government, their trust in the press, their access to information and ultimately the effect of of their interaction with government whether that's through voting or through making their voices heard in other ways whether that's protest or or you know phoning their representatives we do here in the united states going to a surgery in the uk um i think you know this is the the message that needs to get driven home over and over and something that too few governments have have recognized at this point
0: on the on the idea of looking at domestic Uh, disinformation i think certainly here in the uk and from what i can gather on from like american twitter it seems a lot of people when they're looking for disinformation they're looking for for kind of markers that it could be like uh, a russian agent um kind of typing these things or or it's (laughs) what 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 does disinformation look like on, on like a smaller level that the average person may encounter and and how can people tell whether what they're looking at? is disinformation Or or if it's real
1: Yeah, and this has become I think a lot more difficult to do since 2016 in part because the the platforms have tried to push back against um, the kind of overt tactics that we saw early on yeah. so um The the typical kind of troll and bot accounts, you know, an egg avatar on Twitter with a bunch of numbers after its name, um, we're not seeing that as much these days. What we're seeing is more um, kind of information laundering. So especially with the use of Facebook groups or encrypted messengers, um, basically bad actors only need one account that has access to one influential Facebook group and it can drop a link in there. And because of the way that Facebook groups are kind of incentivized within the structure of the platform right now, um, engagement is driven toward them,
0: those links
1: that are dropped there, again, whether by domestic or foreign bad actors, can really take off. Um, And so it's not necessarily that you're going to look and you know with the naked eye be able to see any identifying features of whether something is an authentic account or not. Um, what I would encourage people to do instead, rather than looking at the messenger is really scrutinize the message itself. Um, often disinformation is highly emotional. It runs on the currency of, of emotion. (laughs) So if you feel yourself getting really emotional, for lack of a better word, uh, responding either angrily or joyfully to some sort of content, there is a good chance you're being manipulated. And you should ask yourself why. Look at the source of the content. Say, you know, what is what is this random website or this person? Why do they they want to put this message forward? Um, if you're looking at a website, often seeing if there are kind of copies of that website around the web is a great way to identify particularly monetary disinformation that is trying to uh, harvest clicks. So you can just copy and paste a little bit of the text into Google and see if it brings up anything else. Um, and that will show you you know if there's 10 websites with the exact same article unless it's from one of the wire services uh (laughs) there's a good chance that it has been created for disinformation purposes um another great thing to learn how to do is a reverse image search so that will allow you to see if basically any image has been misattributed, which is really, really common um, with disinformation. Russia does this all the time with pictures from the Bosnian wars that they attribute to being in Ukraine. But if you use reverse image search, you can see actually, okay, this is from 1997 in Bosnia, uh, not from today in Ukraine. And you you can then assess the trustworthiness of that particular outlet. It of course gets a lot more difficult on social media, um, where people, I'm seeing this more and more frequently, that people take screenshots of things that they share and, um, and then will crop it and kind of present it as their own, rather than <clears throat> using the endemic share feature on Facebook. So it's hard to kind of see where the, where the post came from originally. But you can still do reverse image search. It won't always work for stuff you find on, on social media. But again... Um, the most important thing is just if you feel yourself getting emotional, it's perhaps best not to share that <laughs> um, or at least to think a little bit before you do and and do a little bit of due diligence, particularly if it's an outlet that you don't trust or um, that you've never seen being shared before, even if one you know it's perhaps it's time to reassess uh, those those outlets to see if um you know the stuff that you've been sharing is is coming from. A source that might be trustworthy. There's a lot of uh, RT subsidiaries from the Russian government. Um, entities like In The Now or Ruptly that are actually controlled by RT, but I see a lot of left-leaning people, especially in the United States, sharing content from there because they have no idea it's from RT, but they wouldn't share something from RT if it was branded that way. So just doing a little bit of due diligence is really, really useful, particularly in uh, times of crisis, like, I don't know, pandemics or elections.
0: (laughs) One of the kind of strange things that I, I've noticed come out of the pandemic is kind of the blurring um, of lines between, um, I suppose, conspiracy theories that are particular to the United States. Um, so I've seen a lot of people I personally know sharing like QAnon posts that have been coded, so you can't you can't immediately tell that it's QAnon, and it, it's just it's yeah. so it's so bizarre to see that that kind of the the lines are being blurred um it's it's quite frustrating absolutely
1: yeah i had to um message a friend the other day who is involved in the black lives matter movement he's a really smart guy and he had shared he's very politically active and shares a lot of things in his instagram stories and so i'm clicking through their posts about black lives matter i'm liking them or reacting to them and then i come across one of a few Black Lives Matter activists at a rally this past weekend uh, about Save the Children. And this is kind of the the cross, um, again, what you were saying there, the kind of convergence or crossing of a bunch of these conspiracy theories. So uh, QAnon's, one of their main um, thrusts is about child trafficking. And this rally, these rallies were actually organized all across the country by QAnon supporters and um, in this instance, a famous Black Lives Matter influencer shared this content um, about, you know, pedophilia and, and child trafficking. And so I messaged my friend and I said, hey, just so you know, a lot of people don't know this, but like these rallies were organized by QAnon and he was aghast. But this is exactly how it happens. And it happened just this the same way with um, convergence of kind of the reopen or anti-lockdown uh, mm-hmm. movement here in the United States that kind of blew up earlier in the spring with QAnon. Um, it also did the same thing with the anti-vaccination movement. I know uh, some of the similar conspiracies in, in the UK have kind of crossed the anti-5G movement. Oh, so yeah. um, it's. I think the, uh, the moral of the story is that these audiences online are already segmented. They're already vulnerable in some way. They're very active users of all of these platforms. And so it's very easy to target them and to kind of ensnare them in further narratives. And it's something that I think um, the platforms have not really reckoned with in any way. How their how their algorithms incentivize people to go further and further down these rabbit holes is something um, that is really, really disturbing to me.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just kind of shocking, really. <laughs> um, but looking ahead, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but looking ahead to the future, how might we see disinformation evolve as more people become familiar with the the current methods being used?
1: So I think the bad actors are always looking for loopholes, whether that's things that the social media um, the social media companies have kind of not anticipated or whether it's society getting a little bit savvier. Unfortunately, I don't think that we have seen a broader awareness about disinformation Um, spread in a a helpful way. What we've seen instead is kind of the weaponization of the term fake news by a lot of politicians who anytime they encounter something that they don't like (laughs) that is politically inconvenient to them, uh, they use the term fake news. We've seen uh, Trump joke with Putin about fake news and journalists and how we should quote unquote just get rid of them. Um, And on the other hand, we've also seen, you know, both... Uh, sides of the political spectrum here in the United States, discussing issues of, of bias and kind of um, a- anti-freedom of expression types of behavior on, on both sides of the aisle, um, which is, is also disturbing. So it's become kind of this the weaponization, again, of, of the term fake news or of disinformation rather than um, a, a careful consideration of the facts people are just really skeptical of any information that they encounter from quote unquote, the other side. And that's not very helpful either when we're talking about countering disinformation. So what I'd like to see is a more robust um, understanding, a deeper, n- more nuanced con- conversation about what exactly disinformation is and how to protect yourself from it. And the fact that you can't just fact check um, in order to save people from this, it's its just not, uh, it's not viable in fact, psychological research shows that when we fact check, people are more likely to remember the incorrect information than the correct information. So we need to help them navigate this new environment that they're in um, and give them the tools that they need to do that rather than kind of just trying to to lead them to the trough that they don't want to drink from yeah. um, <laughs> to, to use a, you know, farm metaphor. But, uh, but unfortunately, as it stands, you know, we're, we're not there and we're very much just playing whack-a-troll um, and trying to remove, you know, content that we think is, is uh, malign. And unfortunately that runs afoul of a lot of people's um, understanding of, of how freedom of expression, freedom of speech should work online. Uh, so we're in trouble. (laughs) Um, and I think it's only going to get worse unless there's some sort of, uh, you know, really a shift in understanding, um, that ultimately it is individuals who suffer when, when disinformation is released.
0: The future doesn't look very positive right now by the sounds of it. (laughs) Finally, what, what have you recently read that you would recommend picking
1: up? Ooh, um, well, if people are more are interested in learning more about how uh, the platforms are responding to disinformation and how that intersects with freedom of speech, there's a great and very short book by a guy who used to be the UN Special Rapporteur on freedom of expression and freedom of opinion. It is called Speech Police. And the author is David Kay, Kaye,
0: K-A-Y-E. Um, and I just
1: think it's a really fascinating and detailed look in a very short you know span of pages, um, at, at all the trouble that comes up when we start talking about uh content moderation. And that is unfortunately at the, the heart of many of these discussions um related to disinformation. So I think in some ways it made me slightly more sympathetic toward the social media platforms, which is not uh not easy to do for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but also it underlines how you know In many cases, even the democratic governments that are trying to introduce restrictions on disinformation or regulation to counter disinformation are running afoul of democratic and human rights principles and the downstream effects that that has on, you know, uh, minorities, people of color, uh, and, and activists all around the world. So it's really worth reading, and again, very short, so I highly recommend it.
0: That sounds really interesting. I'm going to add it to my uh, my to be read list. I think. Um, well, <laughs> thank you for for coming on the podcast, Nina. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of In the Shadows. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter using the handle In the Shadows Pod.